0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And this is the 10x9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and ten years ago in 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10x9 in the black box in Belfast. And we love it. All our events are now on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10 9com Now, there are three stories in this podcast, as well as some genuine big-time celebrity news, plus a mini-story from Podrick, which he would have stressed out to 10 minutes had he been asked, but thankfully, we didn't need it. So here's the short version.
1: I was almost going to tell a story, but then decided not about the time after I had heard um, a, a kind of a, I don't know, I suppose of a, a religious uh, motivational speaker talk about the need to go and apologize to your parents for all the ways within which you were a dickhead when you were younger. I um, decided to do that when I was about 19 and I sat my parent, I sat my dad down and I said, Dad, I, I really want to just go through some times and walk us through, that's what I've been told to say walk us through some times when I may not have been the ideal son and dad shouted out to my mother Mammy! Podrick's about to apologize and then she shouted in for what? Dad looked at me expectantly and I was like well all the time I wasn't an ideal son and dad goes when were you ever an ideal son (laughs) and then I gave up the experiment. That was the end of my experiment (laughs) in kind of family dynamics a la American Christians.
0: I'm on your father's side on this one, Frederick. Well, actually,
1: no. I totally am also on my father's side
0: on this one. It's now exactly a year since we were last in the black box. Isn't that kind of incredible for those of you who are black box regulars? Um, but since then, we have, and I've counted them. We have done. This is our 18th ten by nine since we since that night. So we're kind of pleased with that. We went to Zoom on in late April. And we've had 53 podcasts since then, so that's actually more than one a week, so... 53 indeed. 54 now, I suppose. Oh, and the celebrity news will be revealed later in the podcast. Let's get to our storytellers. First up, first-timer Therese Morgan joined us from our home in Donegal. It was February 24th and the theme was Experiment and we had teamed up with the Northern Ireland Science Festival. Here's Therese.
2: In the 1980s, there was a recession in Ireland. At that time, I was living with my Scottish husband and three young children in Dublin. There was no work in the building trade. We decided to move to Scotland to a small town near Glasgow on the West Coast. Our fortunes didn't improve, however. After several years, circumstances meant I became a single parent dependent on benefit. As a stay-at-home mother, I had been involved in the community, serving on various committees and working with play schemes and women's groups in a voluntary capacity. Despite several job interviews in this field, the lack of qualifications meant I was unsuccessful. A conversation with Cindy, a youth worker, gave me some ideas. I've recently graduated from Strathclyde University. The community development course there would suit you. Why don't you make some inquiries? When I phoned about the course, the woman was helpful. However, the length of time since I had left school was against me. You need to obtain two Scottish hires, she advised. I felt totally disheartened. Back to speak to Cindy. I'm busy at the moment. Let's meet tomorrow for a coffee. We sat in Greg's while she explained patiently the steps I would need to take. Don't look too far ahead. Treat this as an experiment. The Vale High School has a class beginning in September for adult returners. English would be a good choice and modern studies. That is like civics and the welfare state. Smiling, I said I knew about that. With interest, I began my return to education. I enjoyed the English course. The play was The Plough and the Stars by Sean O'Casey. My being from Ireland gave me a boost as I was able to explain the background to the play. Learning to write essays was challenging, to say the least. Leaving CERT in the 1960s was all about learning by heart. Now it was analyze this, compare and contrast that. A private conversation with the teacher benefited me once I had swallowed my pride. Modern studies was also a challenge. Reading about the welfare state was different to actually experiencing how it operates. learned about race relations in the US and in Chicago where my brother was living at the time. I spent all my free time at home studying. I reapplied to the university and was invited to an interview. The atmosphere in the old building was uplifting. I sat in the library gazing at all the shelves of books. I knew this was the place to be. There were other mature students among the younger ones. To my surprise I was offered a place for the next academic year depending on me passing the hires, an incentive to study harder. I'll never forget the August morning when the brown envelope dropped in the door. I got an A in modern studies and a B in English. Roll on September, the first part of the experiment had worked. In our family going to university was not for us. My path was to secure a job in an office contribute at home until I got married. Here I was aged 46 years old with one child still at home. I hoped all my work would inspire him to stay on at school. I felt overwhelmed at first having to find my way around the different buildings and different lectures. My fellow students were friendly. Would I be able for the work? Would I have time to study at home? I asked myself these questions constantly. There were days when I just wanted to go home and look for a job in a shop. The women in my study group who had families supported me. We supported each other at different times. Essays, presentations, placements followed. As the weeks rolled on into months, I learned how theory underpins practice. The months passed and my first year was completed. Second year began with more new topics and a placement. That winter, as I walked in the dark to the train, my head was so full of ideas for my next essay that I hardly felt the cold. In the spring, snowdrops grew in the the gardens along my route. The essays, presentations and occasional lunches with friends saw me through second year. I was beginning to enjoy the experience and the experiment by then. Third year meant a long placement out in the community. Mine was with the tenants officer with the local authority. This is my chance to put all the theory into practice. I benefited from my supervisor's faith in me. I planned and facilitated meetings, organized events for International Women's Day and for parents groups. I also had a dissertation to write. My topic was community development and health. This caused many a sleepless night, but it was worth it in the end. All too soon, June arrived and our graduation day. I felt so proud receiving my parchment in front of my family and friends. That night, many a pint was drunk and enjoyed. Then the third part of the experiment, securing a post in the community. After several job interviews, I was offered a position as a community worker in Glasgow. It was daunting at first. I wanted to create positive experiences for the people I worked amongst and to share my life experiences, strength and hope. I believe I did that for the time I worked with them. I can say that the three parts of this experiment worked for me.
0: Ah, Therese, thank you so much. What a joy to hear that story and an inspiration. Come back soon. You can see Therese telling that story on our YouTube channel where you can watch almost all the stories from our Zoom events in bite-sized chunks going right back to April last year. OK, next up, we'd not seen him for a while at 10 by 9 but we were delighted to welcome back, all the way from County Monaghan, Paul Bond.
3: I do not like cats. I have never liked cats. I have never wanted a cat. I have always wanted a dog, a chocolate brown Labrador. My soulmate had felt that she had enough to do looking after me and our three wonder monkeys, Jake, Robin, and Elliot. At one point we did have two goldfish, Oddball and Snouty, but alas, they went the way of all goldfish. There were tears, but the kids said I'd feel better the next day. That was a long time ago. We live in Monaghan, the true center of the universe, out in the country, surrounded by farms, fields, and hedges full of feral cats. They never came to the house for food, as they wined and dined on spilt milk from the surrounding dairy parlors and rabbits that litter our landscape. Two years ago, a cat arrived at our door. I chased it. My soulmate chased it. Elliot, our youngest, fed it. It returned the following day with a kitten, and the day after that with another three kittens. I hated all of them, but Elliot seemed to get great enjoyment out of them, and as his main hobby up until that point had been executing everything in sight online, my soulmate thought he should be encouraged. She and Elliot promptly went into the pet store and came home with boxes of cat food, a little cat shed, and the cat and her kittens never showed up again. Around the same time, we decided to do the Camino as a family holiday. The Wonder Monkeys were 19, 17 and 15 at the time and were generally agreeable, except Elliot. Remoteness from a Wi-Fi connection and daily exercise did not appeal to him at all. So we promised him a cat of his very own on our return from holiday. Our daughter Robin's friend, Mad Siobhan, had lots of cats and a new bunch of kittens. So that's where we'd get Elliot's cat. I went along with it all on the proviso that I got to name the cat. The little furball Julie arrived after our return home from Spain. She was the fluffiest cat we'd ever seen. So fluffy, in fact, that Madge Javon's family had called it fluffy before they gave it to us. So naturally, I called it Pasta. Pasta had been the name of Elliot's imaginary friend when he was two. The name stuck. Pasta was an indoor cat, or at least mostly indoor. She was permanently indoor for the first few weeks until she got her various shots and then would venture out occasionally. She did all of the kitten things, being cute and whatnot, but I didn't fall for any of it. The rest of the family fawned over her, constantly taking photos and marvelling at her climbing prowess and ability to do bugger all in a very cute fashion. She would allow Elliot to pick her up. She'd sit in his room while he did his homework. She'd laze on his bed when he was at school. She would sit on the back of his chair at mealtimes. She was devoted to him. I could see right through her, the manipulative little she-devil. She got away with murder. I wasn't allowed to put decorations on our tree at Christmas, because I'd do it wrong. Pasta was allowed to climb to the top of the tree, knock off various family heirlooms to rapturous applause and much photography. In the new year, Pasta and I simply seemed to settle into our mutual loathing. And then a few months later, a little black kitten with white socks and a white patch on her chest appeared at our kitchen window. Pasta hated her with an intensity that shocked the rest of the family, but I knew was always there. She hissed and clawed at the window whenever the little black kitten appeared, but if she happened to be outside when the kitten arrived, she would bolt to the safety of the house where she became brave again. My soulmate warned us all not to feed the kitten. We had a cat of our own and certainly didn't need another one. I fed the kitten. My soulmate chased it away. I fed it again. I don't think that I fed it simply to annoy pasta, although that was certainly part of it. I fed it because it was so affectionate and grateful, unlike pasta who wouldn't spit on you if you were on fire. My soulmate kept chasing it away, but marveled at its persistence until she discovered that Jake, Robin, Elliot and I were all feeding it surreptitiously. She eventually agreed that we could keep it as long as she named it. I'd been calling it Orca because it was black with flecks of white and loudly suggested this as its really cool name, but no, she was called Tuna. Tuna's arrival in the home prompted a change in pasta. She became even more evil. The rest of the family said that she was just being territorial, nope evil. When she terrorized poor tuna, the others simply said that they were playing nope evil. They eventually settled into their respective territories in the house. Upstairs was pastas. the stairs were pastas. The kitchen was pastas. The sun room was pastas, but the sitting room was tunas and pastas. Another change came over Pasta. she became nocturnal, sort of. She would happily sleep inside all day and then look to go out at night, but return around 11 or midnight, looking to get back in. Sometimes she'd stay out all night. Perfect, I didn't have to look at her and Tuna could relax wherever she liked. But a year ago she changed again. She would go out in the evenings, come home at 11 or 12, but then luck to go out again at times varying between 4.30 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. She would paw at our bedroom door until one of us got up, staggered downstairs and either opened the front door to let her out or wandered into the kitchen, fed her and waited for her to finish and then let her out. I hated her even more. Pasta knew I hated it. Pasta walked past the open bedroom doors of Jake, Robin and Elliot to scratch at ours. I'd give out to the kids for not letting her out. They all said that they didn't hear her. My soulmate said that she only heard Pasta when she would run and jump at the door to get our attention. Pasta overheard this. She never jumped at our door again. She pawed at it gently, but consistently, knowing that I'd be the only one to hear it. I'm a notoriously light sleeper, having to remove ticking clocks from houses where we're guests. Pasta knew this. How did Pasta know this? Pasta had been studying me, now she was experimenting. She would paw at the door at 5am, scamper ahead of me downstairs sitting on the wee window beside the front door indicating that she wanted to go outside. When she felt that I got the hang of that she would scamper ahead of me and go to the utility room off the kitchen where I would absentmindedly pour a packet of food for her. If I dared to go back to bed she would wait until I settled back to sleep before gently pawing at the door again and leading me downstairs once more to the front door. Then when she was happy that I could follow basic instruction, she changed it up. Now she would paw at the door, hide under the armchair on the landing, and observe me wander downstairs to open the front door and stand there in the freezing morning darkness in my boxers, waiting on a cat that was sitting halfway up the stairs, testing me to see how long I'd stand there in the cold. Two minutes. Sometimes she would send Tuna to do her bidding to see if I would respond. I did. And then she cracked it. She stopped pawing at the door at all. I would then wake up wondering where she was and if she was all right. Now we have settled into a routine. Pasta goes out in the evening, comes home before midnight. I wake before 5.30am, unbidden, and let her out. Then when I get up to start my own day at 7.30am, she comes back in and stares at me until I share my poached egg with her. I now make two poached eggs every morning. In a reversal of Schrodinger's cat-in-the-box experiment, yes, the one where the cat is both alive and dead until observed, in our house, I am as human. I am both useless and useful to Pastor while I sleep. She decides when to open the box. But while I dream, I run in Rossmore Park, with my chocolate brown Labrador called Spud, and we are both happy. Please don't tell, Pasta.
0: Paul, thank you so much for that. I think I shall remain pet-free for the foreseeable. Now, as you know, 10x9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who's donated. If you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10 by That That is story at 10 by 9com Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. And now here's our third story. Recently, we teamed up with the LGBT Heritage Project NI and the organization Working With Pride for stories on the theme, Body, Mind, Spirit. This story comes from Jude Copeland, who had set himself the challenge in 2021 of doing a 10 by nine and he excelled himself. When I was
4: born in 1982, it was illegal to be gay. Jeff Dudgeon was on his way for the second time to the European Court of Human Rights. One man and some activists gave me the right not to be a criminal. I wouldn't have been able to be the lawyer I am today. I would have been a criminal. During the 1990s, at the time I was only aware of two LGBT events, two historic events, One was that two women kissed in Brookside. And for the more youthful um, in the audience, it was kind of like Hollyoaks, but uh, the people were poorer and they didn't wear very much makeup. That was in 1994. I'll pause here to say that I didn't realise that I was gay. I knew that I felt different, but I wasn't sure what it was. It was a bit like Graham Norton. Um, his story that he felt that he wasn't like others, but he thought that it was because he was a Protestant in Catholic Ireland. The, the second event, well, it, it's it's a bit odd. So I grew up in Sainfield and in Belfast, and I'd grown up watching places I knew blow up, sitting in cars while grown up shopped. I remember my mum's handbag being checked going into CNA this news was different, it had my surname, Copeland, that's a fairly rare surname and I didn't know any Copelands that I wasn't related to and I sat back and listened and it was the news, David Copeland and most of my family have neutral or biblical names, I'm the real outlier with Jude and I wasn't sure if he was related to me, Perhaps, was he my cousin? Was he one of the Belfast Copelands who all looked the same, the ones that I can't tell apart? David Copeland had exploded a nail bomb in a gay bar in London. People died, people were injured, they were in a gay bar. But that was far enough away. I couldn't be related to somebody that far away. Um, one thing that I did take from it was that being gay was a really, really bad thing. Not that I realized that's what it was, it was 1999. Fast forward 20 years to 2019, much happier with my life. I realized that people are different and that being LGBT plus does not increase or decrease your value or your humanity. And I was working in London for a bit, as a lawyer, going to really lovely places, getting to know the places that I'd seen on TV. I'm now apparently, and I use the word apparently, I mean, I am, I've been told by many people that I am, a nightmare to watch TV with. I've been there, they have the worst pints, oh, there's a lovely place around the corner, Jude, stop talking, we know that you've been to London. And I was in London and on my Facebook, up popped an event, 20th anniversary, Soho bombing i had been to the admiral duncan and had fallen in love with it drag seven nights a week the only place in london to still do that it's a really really narrow bar and it's it's narrower than like a wee belfast terraced house and it has a really really low ceiling it's quite dark and to be honest it's a bit monkey during the day my mum would not approve of their cleaning routine Uh, The black barman uh, always finds my accent really, really funny, and my drinks orders funnier. Um, Apparently, nobody other than me orders Ironbury and vodka in there. Um, So it's really, really grim, really, really dull. But when the performers come on, wow, the place just lights up, the glittery walls come alive as if reacting to some of the high notes in the power ballads. The drag queens chat and make gentle fun, knowing just who is there for a laugh. They belt out tunes, they're not like RuPaul, they don't do lip sync, that is not a London thing. The door staff are so, so pleasant. Everything is accepted and everyone is accepted and everyone is wonderful and everyone is treated that way. But the anniversary, I signed up to this commemoration There was a gentle breeze. It was warm and a little sunny. And it was sunny enough for me to hear my mum's voice in my head saying that I should probably be wearing sun cream. I'd been really, really busy with work and I'd gone into autopilot. So I got the central line to Tottenham Court Road, um, got out, got signal, um, walked up. all of the shops that I knew past the pizza place where my friend Chris brought me to one night. It was the worst pizza I have ever had. I'm just really glad that I didn't pay for it. I passed the largest weather spins in U- the UK, which I've never been in and will never go to. Um, and I could feel the emotion welling up inside me. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't beaches or Steel Magnolias level sadness. It, it was just this tiny lump in my throat, and a little bit of moisture like at the back of my eyes, and I turned into Old Compton Street. It was a place that I'd had so many lovely days and nights. The the road was cordoned off, just as it would have been 20 years ago, except people were living and not dying. I walked closer to the Admiral Duncan and stood a discreet distance. People were milling around, chatting. Muscled men were wearing shirts. Not the type of thing that you would see in Belfast most of the time. Most people had suits. A man and his partner were talking beside me with a woman. They were really pleased to see her. And I thought that they hadn't seen each other for a little while. I don't know what it was about them, but I watched them really, really closely. The man was really well-dressed. He smiled at me. One of those thin smiles that is both happy and sad and they just continued their conversation another man joined them and there were introductions a stranger to this couple i was close enough to hear the conversation and the man's the volume of the man's voice dipped and he said i i was there that night i was standing at the bar and i glanced up to the rainbow flag silently moving above the window. I took photos because I wanted to remember that moment. Then I fell off the curb after a dick bumped into me. It was Dame Cressida Dick, a lesbian and the head of the Metropolitan Police Service and her bodyguards. The service was wonderful and warm. It was like a dignified hug. People were telling stories of that day 20 years ago. It was a simultaneous history, but also living. Choirs sang beautiful songs. I lost count of the number of choirs. In my head, I felt like Louis Walsh secretly judging them. I remember bridge over troubled waters and the higher you build the barriers, the stronger I become. The sun was shining, but lowering in the sky we filed down old compton street for the next part we passed balance i was thinking about this lovely gin champagne lavender drink i mean anybody who knows me there's always a drink involved but it's always very good um still thinking about it i turned the street corner there was a guard of honor of firemen and it seemed to stretch to chinatown we went into the church grounds and there were prayers and more singing. It was really, really beautiful. There were loads of pride mummies of the LGBT children trying to outdo each other. There was so much love and so much sadness. It wasn't. A, this wasn't a commemoration. This was a celebration of life and resilience and community. A community that you can automatically be part of if you just come in and say hello. An accepting community. There was a row of performers in the, in the corner of the graveyard and they were all in drag. It was like, who could be the most Jackie Kennedy, one of them. One of the drag queens, one of my favorites, walked past me and tripped and said, Jesus, I can't see a thing in these sunglasses. So I took her, her arm and we walked out. David Copeland was a neo-Nazi. The Suho bomb was his third attempt at hatred. He had aimed for black people in Brixton. He had aimed for Muslims in Brick Lane. Both hadn't worked. John Light died in that bombing. Nick Moore died in that bombing. Andrea Dykes and her unborn child died in that bombing. Over 70 people were injured. One of them, the barman, uh, David Morley, or Cinders to his friends, survived, but five years later was beaten to death by a homophobic gang. But hit doesn't win. If it did, the LGBT community, and I'm stressing the t at the end of the LGBT community, would be long gone. We are resilient, and when I'm in the Admiral Duncan now, I look up at the blue pa- plaque at the entrance, and it says, Queer Heritage, the Admiral Duncan pub, three people killed, 70 injured by a neo-Nazi nail bomber, 30th of April, 1999. No part of my name is on it. I'm nothing like him.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Jude, for such a moving and brilliant story. Hopefully you'll join us again now that you've broken your 10 by 9 duck. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. But don't forget, we've got a bit of showbiz goss for you still to come. Seriously. But before that, if you'd like to tell a story at 10x9, go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10x9.com, and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. I'm going to ask a small favour to you. If you enjoy this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix at 10x9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review? It helps get us noticed. Or just drop us a line to say hello to our email address, story at 10 9com or all the usual social media channels. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to check out Podrick's new project, the Cory Mila Podcast. Get it at all the usual podcasty places. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So blame me. I'll be back with another podcast in a few weeks time, but watch out for bonus material in the meantime. But for now, here's that celebrity exclusive we promised. Bye-bye. Podrick! Do you want to tell us about your exciting week on Instagram? This is for the younger members of the audience. Who did you get got, following you this week? And Well,
1: I got a message on Sunday from somebody in direct messages on Instagram going, dude, Camilla follows you and you don't follow her. Rude. And I initially thought that somebody was implying that Camilla Parker Bowles was on Instagram. And I just deleted the message thinking Camilla Parker Bowles wouldn't be on Instagram. And if she was, she wouldn't be following me. Anyway, it turns out that there is an, a, a Cuban American um, pop star called Camilla. I did not know this because she is not played on Radio No <laughs> um, And so I um, uh, looked her up and uh, indeed she did. She, she was following me on Instagram. She only has 52 million followers. Um, 53, 53 53, my apologies um, uh, Apparently she listens to a podcast That I um, release about poetry And she was finding some of the insights about poetry To be beneficial So um, suddenly um, some friends of mine Who have a 10 year old Who I've never met Was telling all their friends Our friend Podrick is friends with Camilla And so suddenly I'm friends with the 10 year old I have suddenly been appropriated into the wor- their worldview Our friend Podrick
0: Yeah, whatever uh, and also, you picked up another follower with quite a few who's connected to Camilla.
1: Oh, yes. Also somebody who I didn't know about. A fella called Sean Mendes. So, yes, apparently he likes the podcast too. <laughs>